Thank you for listening to this recording of one of the sermons at Christ Presbyterian Church in Milford, Connecticut. The sermon is one part of our public worship on Sundays at Christ Presbyterian Church, Milford. While much of the sermon has broad application, it is directed specifically to the congregation here in Milford and reflects our lives, needs, concerns, and context. We think it's important to note that the sermon follows many other aspects of worship, praise, singing, confession of sins and absolution, scripture reading, and sometimes a baptism or the reception of new members. It precedes prayers, confessions of faith, an offering, and our celebration of the Lord's Supper. All of these are integrated and ideally should not be separated. We're particularly concerned not to separate word and sacrament. By its nature, the sermon calls for a response, receiving the Lord's Supper with the accompanying prayers, reflections, and life of response and community. If you're not a part of Christ's presence, Milford, we hope the sermon is helpful to you and propels you to a full worship and engagement with Jesus' body in your own community. Mark 1, verses 1 through 20. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness, forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you, I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. The word of the Lord. I titled this sermon series, The King and the Cross, because I think these two concepts are pretty significant in the way that Mark has laid out his gospel, and that's actually the way we're going to deal with this uh, set of texts. But I want to just illustrate a little bit about what he's talking about here. The material we're covering in the first half of the first chapter of Mark, when we compare it to the other gospels, Luke doesn't get to until chapters 3 and 4. Matthew doesn't get to until chapters 3 and 4. 
you might have noticed the word immediately coming up over and over again. There's this driving theme in Matthew where they're driving as quickly as possible, so in, Mar- in Mark, not Matthew, <laughs> we're in Mark. There's a driving theme in Mark of getting to the cross as quickly as possible. There's an urgency and an immediacy. But in the midst of that urgency and immediacy, the other significant point he's making is that Jesus is a king, that Jesus is the center of the story, that Jesus is God come into the world to fix the problems of the world. We have a tendency to make the story about ourselves, uh, to focus on how it's about me. Even in, you know, when I share my testimony, I can have this tendency to tell my story about how God was a helpful accessory in my life. And the point that Mark is making is that this is a story about Jesus. It's a story about the God of creation re-entering creation in order to redeem it, and it focuses on that king coming into his creation to redeem it. So let's pray, and then we're going to move into the text some. Lord Jesus, we come to you thankful that you are king, and that you are the king who has come in order to redeem us. We come to your word needing you, though, to open our eyes. My tendency is to put myself at the center of the story. Our tendency is to do that. And so we need you as we come to your word to see what you have placed here and not what we would place here. So we call on you to do that in your name. Amen. First, we'll look at the king. I want you to notice the, the way that the Mark begins the gospel. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, both of those words, and I'm going to mostly focus on words that come up a lot or in significant ways here. Uh, First, under king, we're going to look at gospel, and then we're going to look at Son of God. Uh, You probably know that the word gospel is just the word good news. That's how we translate it. But it's more than just what that expression means in our context because it was almost a technical word for an entrance into history event. Now, we're talking about Jesus, God, entering into history, entering into you know, the, the creation that he made. But when I say entrance into history, I mean also a, an event that would put you in the history books for being part of that event, and specifically a positive event. Uh, This is what you would call the news if you're a city that's under siege. When news makes its way through that there is an army coming to lift the siege, that is technically gospel, good news. Or if you are a king who has just defeated an enemy and you're marching back in victory to your home, the news that you send ahead to say, we don't need to fear the enemy anymore, I've defeated them, is gospel, good news. Think maybe about in America's founding, uh, the Battle of Bunker Hill. The Battle of Bunker Hill was actually a loss for the colonists, but it was a loss that was so costly for Britain that it suggested victory might be possible. They proved that they could actually go up against the the greatest superpower in the world at that time and cause enough damage that the superpower didn't want to keep having to re-engage. In that kind of sense, that was a, a gospel, a good news. Well, when Jesus says, sorry, when Mark says that he is telling us the gospel of Jesus Christ, it carries that sort of technical meaning. This is the good news of a king doing something, of a king overcoming a limitation. If you look down in verse 14 and 15, 
We start to get the, the actual statement as we get a, a summary of what Jesus' message is going to be. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled, and then we get this synopsis of what Jesus' message is. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So there's this technical idea about the entrance of God into history. And I want to contrast that a little bit. When we talk about theology, very often we use the word gospel as shorthand for the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith. Uh, The idea that what, what is salvation? We are saved, we are restored to God, we are saved from enslavement to our sin by the grace of God, the action of God, through our faith in that action. But that's actually a little bit too narrow for the way the Bible uses the word gospel. That is true. That is essential to what the Bible says the gospel is. But the gospel is this broader idea of the reality that God is coming to bring change, that the king is coming into his kingdom to establish it, that God is coming to restore a fallen creation to himself, and that God is the one who is active in doing that. Now, in its context, look at what's, what's said about John. Immediately we jump to, I'm using Mark's word here, uh, we jump to, it is written in the prophet Isaiah, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare the way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make, straight his, make his path straight. Now this is a quotation of Isaiah that is predicting what John is going to be doing as John prepares the way for the, the Messiah. And so there's a claim here that this is Messiah that's coming. And that feeds into this technical idea of gospel that I'm talking about. Messiah is expected to come as a king who will free his people. John appeared baptizing the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And his message is listened to and responded to. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed in camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Uh, John is, in many ways, feeding into this expectation by his words, saying, The one is coming whose strap of his sandal I am not worthy to untie. He's talking about kingly language there. It's going to take someone better than me to come into contact with the royal personage coming after me. And this plays into what the people would have expected. What does a kingdom mean if you live in ancient Palestine? If you're a Jewish person living under the domination of Rome? For them, kingdom means prosperity, peace, stability, not being dominated by your enemies. It's all the things that they're longing for. But their understanding of kingdom is going to also be explicitly political. They want a Messiah who is coming as a king who will throw off the kings that oppress them and will lead them to a position of political stability. And this pushes against John's presentation of himself. John was clothed in camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and honey. Uh, The the reference to, you know, locusts we can get, okay, this looks kind of nasty. The honey, we tend to think of honey as, you know, sweet, enjoyable. But their point is he's eating something that doesn't, it's not cultivated. It's similar to the locusts in that respect. 
He's living in a very wild way. He's not what you would expect of the person coming to prepare the way for a king. And this is an inkling that things are going to be slightly different than the people are looking for, even though he's using the language they expect. They expect good news, gospel. The king is coming to free you from Rome. But John is trying to say that this is something bigger. Think about the way that we lean into our world very frequently. And this is true throughout human history. The Jews did this. They expected political redemption. We want to look to politics as a solution. If you think about the way the news of Obama's election in 2008, after the George Bush presidency, which, you know, brought America's status down in the world. Americans during the George Bush presidency went from being respected to being sort of concerned that we were expansionist. And a lot of Americans greeted the election of Obama as good news, a political savior, someone that's going to make things different. You can say the same thing about looking at the the impact of Trump on the conservative world. Is Trump going to be the one that's going to fix the the problems that we see in the country and the ways that we we feel like, you know, America has failed to be great. Let's make America great again. And we become very, very comfortable with the idea that we're going to have a political Messiah come along and fix us. And we're falling into the very same trap that the Jews fell into. The gospel is that Jesus is coming into the world as its king. And he's coming as its king to restore it, to fix the problem. And in that sense, he's doing something very significant and special and unique. The reference we're focusing on in our service today on the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus being this exclusive claim, when we make comparisons between the world's religions, when we talk about how there are, you know, the world's religions teach that we should not kill and that we should not steal and that we should love other people. And in that sense, yeah, those things are true. But they're also advice. They're telling you what you need to do is you need to not kill people and God will love you. You need to not steal things and God will love you. You need to love other people so that God will love you. The fact that Jesus doesn't come giving advice, think of the, the statement that I, that I opened with from Philip Yancey where he talks about Jesus saying, you know, the, the mumper sticker says, Jesus saves. Now put Plato or Buddha or Napoleon into that, and it just sounds ridiculous. That's because we're not looking for Plato's or Buddha's wise words, wise advice to us about how we can fix our problem. We need, rather, someone that comes doing something that fixes the problem for us. That's what makes the Christian claim. That's what makes Jesus' preaching here. When he says, he's proclaiming the gospel of God, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Believe that God is coming as king to make a change, to fix the problem. The second thing I want us to notice, the second thing that he opens with is, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, we are familiar because we talk about being brothers and sisters of Jesus and being sons and daughters of God, being children of God. We miss the significance of that claim. Israel would refer to Israel as being the children of God in a, in a uh, plural sense. We are collectively the children of God. But they wouldn't talk about being a son or daughter of God in an exclusive sense. 
And Mark is using the way that Israel talked about their relationship to God to make a very specific point here, the Son of God in a unique way. Son as in sharing the same material as, connected to, part of. This is a claim to the deity of Jesus that is wrapped up in that idea of kingship. Look down at verses 9 through 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. We're seeing this picture of the Trinity. Jesus coming out of the water, the voice of the Father declaring, and the Spirit descending. In the, uh, the Targums, a collection of writings that are interpreted, it's both a, a translation of the Hebrew Bible into Aramaic and also rabbinical commentary on the Hebrew Bible, uh, we have a reference in Genesis 1 where we have that the Spirit hovered over the face of the water. The way that is translated into Aramaic is that the Spirit fluttered over the water like a dove. And we start to realize there is a repicturing here that while it might be offensive to Jewish ears, that we're very cautious to, to keep God singular, it's also going to speak in the same language of Genesis 1, where we see God active in the creation of the world and the Spirit hovering over the water, as the rabbi said, fluttering like a dove over the water. And in that context, we will talk about the point that Jesus is creator and the significance that within the Trinity, Jesus is the one who does the creation. Well, think in the Genesis account how that happens. God spoke and it happened. We refer to Jesus as the Word of God. Jesus is that action of God. And so we see the Trinity working together in the creation in the same way that the Trinity reveals themselves in this picture as Jesus goes for baptism, to identify himself not only as king, but as God. Now, this is another distinctiveness of Christianity, that we don't worship a monad, a single God, and that we don't worship a plethora of gods or a plurality of gods. We worship a trinity. God is fundamentally not more one than he is three, and fundamentally not more three than he is one. I want to quote two authors as they reflect on this. C.S. Lewis makes this comment, In Christianity, God is not a static thing, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of drama, almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. And the theologian Cornelius Plantinga more recently writes, The persons within God exalt each other, commune with each other, and defer to one another. Each divine person harbors the others at the center of his being. In constant movement of overture and acceptance, each person envelops and encircles the others. God's interior life, therefore, overflows with regard for others. Now, this fixes some things for us in some ways. Uh, you might be familiar with the this first question of the catechism that the Presbyterians use, what is the chief end of man? What is our chief purpose as humans? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Well, Pastor John Piper kind of turns that on its head and points out, what is God's chief end? Well, God's chief end also is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That is because God is the one who is worthy of all worship. 
we start to find that a little offensive. You know, we want to say, well, we, Jesus says that, you know, it's the, it's the Gentiles' leaders that lord it over them, and yet here we see God saying, no, I'm actually worthy of worship. And yet the God who is worthy of worship, who commands our worship, who commands all things to center on himself by being Trinity, is in his essence self-sacrificing, self-giving, concerned for and giving to the needs of the other members of the Trinity. When we become self-centered, when we make the story about ourselves, when we demand that other things and other people and other relationships function for us, it becomes all about us. It becomes selfishness, and it begins to break down. When we image the Trinity in our concern for and love for and care for first God and then others beyond ourselves, we begin to actually see a restoration of the way creation is supposed to function in the image of the God who is himself relationship and caring for and glorifying and serving the other members of the Trinity in his very essence. Now, the second uh, heading I want to look at this under is the cross. And we don't actually see the cross in these 20 verses, but there's three things that, that point us that way. Uh, The first is the word immediately that gets used four times here. Uh, This is where we see Mark having this desperate urgency in the way he's writing his gospel. That he is driving as quickly as he can to the reason for which Jesus came. In fact, this is what gospel points to. Not only God's entrance into history, but God's entrance to do something, which means the cross. His death in order to overcome the brokenness his solution to our problem, immediately actually occurs 41 times in the 16 chapters of the book of Mark. He's constantly saying immediately, immediately, immediately. And it imposes on the text this urgency. I'd suggest that he probably uses the word more as a transition than as a chronological determiner to say that from one instant to the next instant this happened, but rather in a way of saying like with urgency we move to the next thing. Uh, with urgency, God must declare himself as Jesus is baptized. Immediately, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending like a dove, and then immediately, the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, we see, as we spoke about before in our New Testament lesson in the, in the service, this parody of Jesus with his people. Jesus coming where the people were sent into the wilderness for 40 years, Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days, claiming to be the ideal Israelite. Where Israel failed over and over again in the wilderness, Jesus confronts Satan and wins. Mark points to these two th- uh, in the wilderness, immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, Mark is the earliest gospel account, and as Mark is writing his gospel for the church, he's writing to a church that is beginning to face persecution. He's beginning to encourage a church that actually is facing the possibility of being torn apart by wild animals in the Colosseum to entertain the Romans. And so, he's not just identifying Jesus with Israel, he's also identifying Jesus with his New Testament church as well. And as Jesus was in the wilderness as the ideal Israel, the Israel that accomplished what Israel was sent to do, 
Jesus is going to accomplish through His people. He was out with the wild animals. They're going to get sent to the wild animals. It doesn't mean He's going to protect them from them. But He's going to accomplish His mission through them. Next, notice the word repent. Now, repent only occurs twice. But it's a pretty significant place that it occurs because it's at the point where Mark first gives us words from Jesus' own mouth. And what he has Jesus saying here is a synopsis of what Jesus is going to be saying throughout the rest of the book. Verse 15, Jesus is coming to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Uh, There's another allusion to repentance. The other place that it occurs is up in verse 4 where it says that John appeared baptizing the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Then baptism comes up another two times. Well, if we understand baptism to be an allusion to repentance, repentance actually becomes the primary concept that flows through this passage. And it's appropriate that we understand baptism as an allusion to repentance. Uh, Baptism pictures cleansing. If you're dirty and need to be clean, there's a repentance going on there. Submitting yourself to washing is taking away the dirtiness in exchange for the cleanness. We see the priests uh, sprinkling the people, baptizing is the word that that gets translated into in Greek in the, uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, baptizing the people with hyssop as a means of cleansing them. But the ceremony that John is carrying the people through, as we see it pictured for Jesus, it doesn't seem that we see John with a crowd in front of him sprinkling them with hyssop as a priest would. It seems that he's baptizing individuals. The picture of Jesus going down into the Jordan is a picture of baptism. And there's actually a parallel to this in Israelite tradition. When a person outside of Israel, a Gentile, wanted to become a member of the people of Israel, the first step was baptism a cleaning, a washing, a going from unclean Gentile outside the people of God to clean included in the people of God. And in that sense, it's repentance. It's the person submitting themselves to the washing by the priest to overcome their own sin, their own uncleanness. It's a picture of repentance. Now think for a little bit about that picture in the relatively Jewish context of of John's audience. We're Jews. We don't need baptism. We're already clean. You're asking us to go through the getting re-included into the people of Israel ceremony that we don't need. We're descended from Moses. We're fine. And yet John is telling them, you need this baptism. You need repentance. You need to accept that you're not the solution. You're part of the problem. And that you need to come into repentance to be enfolded into Christ's solution. Think about the way our world approaches forgiveness. In the context of ancient Israel, the call to repentance, where the Pharisees are telling the people, clean up, do the right thing. Get yourself in line, follow the law, and that's going to make you okay. You can't admit to needing repentance in that context. It's the same for uh, the Greco-Roman world. The Greco-Roman world is saying it's our Hellenism, it's our culture, it's all of these things that make us good. There's not a place for repentance in that. There's only a place for self-improvement. As a culture, this is how we think we fix ourselves. Self-improvement, following the rules, coming up with whatever it is that justifies us and making sure that we check off every box. 
Think about, to use a political illustration again, the way that if you step out of line in our culture, there is no coming back. Uh, for J.K. Rowling to question if the way we're dealing with trans people is actually hurting women means J.K. Rowling has become an untouchable. And if you want to read her books to your kids, well, you've you got to read it with a pinch of salt. Uh, the same thing has happened in the conservative movement. The litmus test of, are you a Trump supporter? And for those that are Trump supporters, if you're not, you don't get it. You're out. There's no coming back. As a culture, we don't understand the idea of repentance. Just in the same way that the first century culture that Jesus was speaking to didn't understand the idea of repentance. You're a Jew because you keep the law and you do the right thing, and if you become a tax collector, you're out. There's no coming back. You betrayed your people. That's it. It's against human nature to like the idea that I can simply admit that I'm wrong and that I can't fix it and I need something beyond myself. And yet, Jesus says that it's central to what he's calling, to what he's preaching, to what his point of coming into the world is for. It's a remarkably subversive thing that he's preaching here. The next thing I want us to look at in this cross is the taking up of our cross. And we'll see this more as we move into Mark. But as Jesus comes driving towards the cross, he calls people to follow him. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately, there's again that urgency word, they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Now, we often make a lot of, you know, these are dirty fishermen and they're poor fishermen and so on, but that's not really an accurate picture of the fishing trade, particularly for these four men, Simon, Andrew, James, and John. Uh, it's clear that they are boat-owning fishermen. Look at the contrast in the last. They left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Uh, the hired servants are probably going to be relatively poor, but these are actually men that are running a business, and it's a business that requires a lot of capital. Keeping a fishing boat large enough to have multiple people in it going out on the Sea of Galilee in order to catch large amounts of fish is a capital-intensive venture. The boat itself costs a lot of money, and maintaining the boat costs a lot of money. And then you get into the process of hiring people, taking responsibility for figuring out how to train those people and care for those people and provide for those people. These are four people that are probably in the upper echelons of Jewish society along the Sea of Galilee. They have money. They have standing. They have status in their community. And Jesus comes into that context and says to them, leave that status and become the people who follow a wandering preacher. It's also significant because he's saying to them, and this, this is really brought out in 20, where immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants to follow them. They left their father with the hirelings. He's calling them to an abandonment of family. 
he's underscoring the depth of how immediate the gospel is going to be in their lives, how immediate their commitment to the gospel is going to work out in what he's calling them out of. Now, we can kind of set ourselves apart from this and make it a thing where, like, you know, this is ancient culture and people understood following these, you know, itinerant preachers and so on. But the Galilee of Jesus' day is remarkably similar to our own culture. Uh, The way that Galilee was laid out, it was one of the most uh, densely populated places in the world at the time. Uh, When you think about the way that New England is laid out, where we kind of have just small towns running into each other back to back to back, that's how civilization along Galilee functioned. There were a lot of people there. And those people looked very Gentile. Galilee was called Galilee of the Gentiles when it's referred to numerous places in the New Testament. The largest city in Israel that is mentioned in the New Testament is the city of Tiberias. And not not the largest city mentioned in the New Testament, but the largest city in Israel is Tiberias. It's a a Roman city, but it was founded by the Romans and peopled by the Galileans, who are mostly of Jewish extraction. And it's founded on a cemetery. That means that to live in Tiberias automatically makes you ritually unclean. And yet it was able to become the largest and most powerful and most significant cultural center in the Israel of Jesus' day. When we look at archaeology, we find that in all of Tiberias, there was one synagogue that measured 60 feet by 80 feet. Now that's a reasonably large building. But if Tiberias is the largest city in Israel, how are the Jewish spiritual needs of that city met by one synagogue that measures 60 feet by 80 feet? It means that we're looking at a Galilee that is sort of post-Jewish. The main street of Beit Shean, a nearby city, is oriented for sun worship. And looking again at the archaeology of Tiberias, there's a lot of baths, there's a lot of brothels, but there's only one synagogue. Jesus is coming and doing His ministry in Galilee in what is a very post-Jewish society, in a very similar to the way that we live in a very post-Christian society. And there's critique here in this following. Uh, The priority over parents was a bigger deal for them than it is for us. But for us, this call to follow is going to tell us that there's a priority over the things our culture values most, career, Money, health, family, they're all things that Jesus comes with this subversive call, saying, come immediately and follow me. Repent and believe the gospel. This is a a very big call that Mark is making here, a very big order that he's announcing the coming of the king who's going to redeem the creation and to calling people into following that king in a way that radically reorients their lives. Uh, There's a call not just to repent of individual sins, but of the fact that we are sinners, to acknowledge our need for the king who brings change, the king who just doesn't doesn't just tell us how to clean up our lives and follow his rules, but says there's no way we can ever do that, that we need his activity, to repent of our expectation that we can actually make the difference, but rather to accept that we need to conform ourselves to Him, to admit our dependence on Him. 
And then to radically reorient our lives, to give up our place at the center of the story, and to accept that we are becoming satellites in His story. Uh, One place to take this corporately, uh, we're a really small church. You know, we, we went to launch and then COVID hits and our plans for how we were going to expand kind of fall by the wayside. The average visitor walking into our church probably does the math quickly and is kind of like, you're sort of a glorified community group, right? But we have a big message. It's not about the, the bigness that we project as a church. It's about the bigness of the message that we're part of, that God is calling us into this enormous story. The king has entered into his creation to redeem it and called us to follow him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are not equal to the problem in front of us. We see our separation from you, the brokenness of the world around us and our inability to fix that brokenness, our making it worse at every point that we touch it. And so we repent and acknowledge our need for you as the one who is able to bring change. We see this call that would actually separate family in a society where family is the the center of honor and the epitome of shame would be to fail one's family. And yet in that culture, you come and you call people to leave their family. In our culture where what we can accomplish for ourselves, what we can show about ourselves, the image we can project into the world is all-encompassing, you call us to make you the image we are conforming ourselves to. And we acknowledge our insufficiency to that task. So we repent and call on you to make us those who believe and follow. We pray it in your name. Amen.